0: Welcome to World War I Centennial News. It's about World War I news 100 years ago this week, and it's about World War I now. News and updates about the centennial and the commemoration. World War I Centennial News is brought to you by the U.S. World War I Centennial Commission and the Pritzker Military Museum and Library. Today is May 31, 2017, and I'm Teo Mayer, Chief Technologist for the World War I Centennial Commission and your host. We've gone back in time 100 years ago this week. It's commencement week at universities around the country, and this week, in May 1917, Texas A&M, which for those of you who don't know stands for Agricultural Military, has canceled the graduation ceremonies. The Aggies have nixed the ceremonies because most of the 120 students in the graduating class have reported to active duty in the military. This is a first ever for Texas A&M. The war effort is getting into full swing around the country. For details, let's look at some of the headlines and stories in The Official Bulletin, America's Government War Gazette, published by the Order of President Wilson. There are themes that manifest in the paper. Buy war bonds is a clear theme, as the nation prepares to raise a massive amount of capital for the war. Headlines on that theme this week include Appeal to Women of Nations to Purchase Liberty Bonds. Another Secretary of Commerce urges every employee to purchase Liberty Loan Bonds. And Navy called upon to get behind the Liberty Loan. Or Liberty Loan Success Vital. Finally, buying a Liberty Bond is the least sacrifice Americans must make. This goes on in every issue. This is a national fundraising drive like no other in history, unlike the wars of the late 20th and early 21st century that are paid for by some magical process called debt. In 1917, the populace is expected to step up and contribute. But some things stay incredibly parallel. Here's a headline from Secretary of the Navy Daniels about fake news. Dateline, Saturday, May 26, 1917 false reports about the sinking of U.S. ships deplored by Secretary Daniels. It is with deep regret that I note the daily stream of false reports with regard to the sinking of American ships. Brokerage wires are a particular source for these baseless rumors that cannot be but the cause of needless distress to every true American as well as to mothers. The one hope is that the press will refuse to aid this campaign of vicious rumors that is, being carried on so industriously by persons unknown. Following is an interesting example by Secretary of War Baker, sent as a letter to all governors of all states regarding the moral maintenance of young conscripts. In the training camps already established, or soon to be established, large bodies of men, selected primarily from the youth of the country, will be gathered together for a period of intensive discipline and training. The greater proportion of this force probably will be made up of young men who have not yet become accustomed to contact with either the saloon or the prostitute and who will be at that plastic and generous period of life when questionable modes of indulgence easily serve as outlets for exuberant physical vitality. The article goes on in detail about keeping these young men from corruption, gambling, drinking, and partying too much. We're also in a war of new technology, and America is, if nothing else, incredibly innovative. Dateline, May 28, 1917. Believed to be the first complete unit of horseless artillery created. Substitution of tractors for animals in handling nearly all forms of ordnance predicted. The story goes on to explain the detail, but mechanization was a big deal with trucks, tanks, ambulances, and even Harley-Davidson motorcycles. Just as with innovation, American industry and American entrepreneurship are both also exercised in a really big way. A good and simple example is shoes. Dateline, June 2, 1917. Headline, Army and Navy contract for 3,450,000 pairs of shoes. Contracts for shoes, 2 million for the Army and 850,000 for the Navy have just been awarded. It was announced today. These are the largest shoe contracts ever made by the government and were made under the new system by which the requirements of the Army and Navy are considered jointly, and the representatives of practically the entire industry affected are brought together to meet the needs of government. The war effort also upsets the social norms of American society as the country tries to come to grips with fundamental changes. Dateline May 28, 1917. Training camp for colored men established in Iowa the Chief of Staff of the Army issues a brief outlining the provisions made for training camps for colored citizens. You are advised that training camps for colored citizens will be established at Fort Des Moines, Iowa. The camp is under the control of the Department commander, Central Department, who will prepare and conduct same. The story of the conscription of African Americans, their treatment before, during, and after the war, and how this led to the Civil Rights Movement is fundamental to what made World War I the war that changed the world. Another ongoing theme that continues weekly is the draft. The process of it, the resistance to it, and the conflict about it. Examples this week include 11 arrests for attempts to hinder registration. 11 arrests have been made and 9 indictments have been returned by federal grand juries as a result of the attempt to hinder registration in accordance with the provisions of the new Army Bill. Headline. Provost Marshall denies all married men will be exempt from draft law. The article goes on to explain that there will be no exemption for married men with families, as rumor had insinuated. Headline. War Department points out what young men should do on registration day, which is, by the way, on June 5th. What does a young man need to do on registration day? He does his duty to his country, and he will find that the ways and means of doing it are not laborious, involved, or complex. Headline. Men leaving U.S. to escape registration to be halted. Department of Justice officials are determined that no man subject to registration under the new Army law shall escape his obligation by leaving the United States before June 5th. All of this comes from the official bulletin, which is now being published daily on the centennial of its original published date. You can read the current and the past issues on our website. For historians, social anthropologists, and anyone interested in exploring the nuances of America's transformation in 1917, go to ww one ccorg bulletin. Joining us now is former NPR correspondent Mike Schuster from the Great War Project blog. Mike, your story this week also looks at the conflict in U.S. society over the war.
1: That's and in fact, here are some headlines that could have been written a century ago. In U.S., little enthusiasm for war. Enter the Four Minute Men, campaign against sedition. Anti-war protesters face possible prison. And this is special to the Great War Project. Two months after President Woodrow Wilson's call to arms and the entry of the United States into the Great War, a patriotic state of mind was virtually non-existent in the U.S., writes historian Adam Hochschild. British agents in the U.S. reported back to London that the mood in the U.S. is hardly eager for war. There's evidence that in many localities, the people have only entered the war with reluctance and with a feeling of inevitability rather than with any enthusiasm. In an exchange between Wilson's advisors, Private Secretary Joe Tumulty and Chief Confidant Colonel Edward House, Tumulty nervously informed House that the people's righteous wrath seems not to have been aroused. The widespread lack of enthusiasm observed by the British ambassador to the U.S. was obviously not overdrawn. What to do? It falls to a man named George Creel. Creel becomes President Wilson's propaganda chief. He develops many forms of pro-war propaganda, but perhaps the most influential is his creation of a group called the Four Minute Men. The Four Minute Men engage in many forms of propaganda, but the most effective are the speeches they give in thousands of movie theaters across the country. The Four Minute Men are local volunteers who deliver four-minute speeches in favor of the war, either before or after the feature film. The speech is billed as a subject of national importance. The four-minute speech quickly catches on, and 75,000 four-minute men, according to historian Thomas Fleming, spread throughout the country, delivering four-minute speeches not only in film theaters, but in lodges and labor union meetings, church halls, lumber camps, and even Native American reservations. The goal? To deliver, in Fleming's words, white-hot war will. Their first topic focuses on universal service by selective draft. The purpose is to infuse the concept of the draft with moral uplift. And it isn't simply using patriotic rhetoric in this effort. Fleming reports, behind the patriotic rhetoric, a mailed fist was also at work. In a town named Snyder, Texas, seven men are arrested at this moment in the war effort a century ago and charged with seditious conspiracy for planning to resist conscription by force. Similar arrests take place in many states, including Michigan, Illinois, and Washington. Socialists, anti-war to a man, were jailed in Detroit and Cleveland. The campaign against this so-called sedition spreads rapidly. When two men tried to get a court order to prevent the governor of Missouri from enforcing registration, they also wound up behind bars. In New York, three men were arrested for passing out anti-draft literature. Two of them ended up in the federal penitentiary in Atlanta. And on May 25th a century ago, the Los Angeles Times runs a headline, Death for Treason awaits anti-draft plotters. Rapidly, the mood across the nation turns poisonous. In Butte, Montana, demonstrators march with a huge red banner, down with war. According to historian Fleming, they were confronted by local militia with fixed bayonets. Shots are fired and arrests are made. The city is put under martial law. And that's some of the stories from the Great War Project a century ago.
0: Thank you, Mike. That was Mike Schuster from the Great War Project blog. This week in The Great War in the Sky, we're going to profile U.S. Army Colonel Reynold Bowling. Bowling an Arkansan who graduates from Harvard University Law School, moves to the East Coast and is in sympathy with the objectives of the Preparedness Movement, a group of influential Americans advocating military preparedness for involvement in World War I and drawn primarily from the wealthy lawyers, bankers, academics, and politicians of the Northeast. He's also a member of the American Aero Club and begins taking flying lessons on property owned by the Wright Company near Garden City, New York. By the time the United States was at war with Germany, Boling was called to active duty. And so as of May 26, 1917, 100 years ago this week, he organizes a new 154-man squadron, the first air reserve unit in the United States. Turns out that French Premier Alexandre Ribot has sent U.S. President Woodrow Wilson a telegram at the end of May urging the United States to contribute 4,500 aircraft. 5,000 pilots, and 50,000 mechanics to the war effort. Because of his legal experience, Bowling is assigned to assist in the drafting of legislation to fund the development of military aviation in response to Ribo's proposal. The subsequent Aviation Act passes on July 24, 1917, and is the largest single appropriation for a single purpose in U.S. history, $640 million. That's over $13 billion in 2017 dollars. In conjunction with that duty, he's also appointed to head an aeronautical commission to Europe, known as the Bowling Mission, to represent Secretary of War Newton D. Baker and the board. We'll hear more about Reynold Bowling in the coming months. He was smart, effective, and an influential character in the formation of U.S. military aviation, especially 100 years ago this week in The Great War in the Sky. If you'd like to watch interesting and informative videos about World War I 100 years ago this week, check out the new post from our friends at the Great War Channel on YouTube. This week, their new episode includes a special about Croatia. Indy Neidell, the show's host, points out that most nations involved in World War I were parts of empires. This special focuses on one nation inside of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, Croatia, the 10-minute retrospective will provide a new insight into a country that we hear about on the news occasionally, but we don't really know much about. So to learn more about World War I from a more European perspective, we recommend watching the wonderful videos from the Great War channel on YouTube. The link is in the podcast notes, or search for The Great War on YouTube. We've moved forward into the present with news about the centennial and the commemoration. We're going to open our story about Memorial Day last week with a quote about General Pershing from Sandra Pershing, his granddaughter-in-law.
2: General John J. Pershing, America's general of the armies during World War I, once said, the glorious example of our American soldiers' fidelity and courage will be remembered by those who come after us.
0: General Pershing would have been proud. Our American World War I veterans were well-remembered and well-honored this Memorial Day, and that thanks to the work of hundreds of volunteers across the country. The U.S. National World War I Centennial Events Register at ww one ccorg events showed over 50 Memorial Day weekend events, exhibits, activities, parades, all with a World War I theme. They were shared by groups and individuals in Arkansas, California, North Carolina, Wisconsin, Tennessee, Ohio, Florida, all over the country. You can read more about the many diverse events that took place on Memorial Day at ww one ccorg slash news. And we encourage you to check out our events calendar and to add your upcoming events to it at ww one ccorg slash events. Click on the big red button to put your World War I-related event into the National Register which will become part of the permanent National Archive of the Centennial. Next, it's time for some updates from the states, and this week we begin with two stories about New York. Last week, an exhibit called World War I Beyond the Trenches opened at the New York Historical Society in Manhattan. The exhibit had previously been at the Pennsylvania Academy of the Fine Arts, running with great acclaim for several months under the name World War I and American Art. Dr. Robin Jaffe Frank has curated the show for its presentation at the New York Historical Society. And there's another chance to hear Dr. Frank speak about the collection as she'll be giving a special gallery tour on June 26th to explore how artists across generations, aesthetic sensibilities, and the political spectrum used their art to depict, memorialize, promote, or oppose the Great War. It's truly an amazing collection and a must-see if you're going to go to New York between now and September 3rd. Follow the link in the podcast notes to learn more. And now a story about Flagstaff. Not Arizona, but still New York, near Madison Square Garden. Three years ago, the star atop the Eternal Light Flagstaff, a World War I memorial in Madison Square Park in Manhattan, extinguished. This past week, at the cost of $50,000 and in time for Memorial Day, the eternal lit star shone brightly once again. The flagpole is a monument to the veterans of World War I and to New York's role in the war, a port city that a vast number of doughboys passed through on their way to and from Europe. Interestingly, it's also the location of the wreath-laying ceremony which commences New York's nationally famous annual Veterans Day Parade, the largest in the country. World War I Commissioner Libby O'Connell was a speaker at the relighting ceremony along with representatives from the United War Veterans Council, the Madison Square Park Conservancy, the Manhattan Borough President, and the New York City Park's Manhattan Borough Commissioner. Thank you NYC for honoring our Doughboy veterans. On the Indiana State Centennial Commission website at www.1cc.org Indiana, there is an article about Aaron R. Fisher, the most highly decorated African-American soldier from Indiana to serve in World War I. Fisher was the son of a Civil War veteran and was raised in Lyle Station, Indiana. He joined the Army in 1911, way prior to the outbreak of the war, and was promoted to corporal in 1914 and served under Pershing during the Mexican punitive expedition that we talked about last week. He was promoted to lieutenant during his service in World War I and was awarded the Distinguished Service Cross from the United States government and the Croix de Guerre from the French government for the bravery and determination he displayed in battle, leading his troops to successfully repel a German raid despite his troops being totally outnumbered and himself being wounded. Read more about his life and service at ww one ccorg Indiana or by following the link in the podcast notes. Pennsylvania's nickname is the Keystone State because it was the middle colony in the original 13 colonies. In 1917, it was also the home of the Eddystone Munitions Plant, which produced shrapnel shells and other armaments for the war effort. But on April 10th, just days after America joined the war, it blew up. 139 people were killed when 18 tons of black powder ignited, setting off an explosion that could be felt 10 miles away. You can learn all about the Edisto Munition Plant by visiting ww1cc.org/pennsylvania, all lowercase. There, they have many resources, links and articles about Pennsylvania during the war, including Edisto, local stories from the era, and much much more. In our education section, we have a follow-up to last week's introduction to National History Day. With us today is Executive Director of National History Day, Dr. Kathy Gorn. Hi, Kathy. Hi there. Kathy, tell us a little about National History Day and how it evolved from a series of contests to a full-fledged, highly acclaimed national academic program.
3: I would love to. Uh, it is an organization and a program that is dedicated to improving the way history is taught and learned in the schools. In other words, getting away from a boring textbook and memorizing names and dates and that sort of thing. Instead, encouraging young people in middle school and high school to choose a topic in history, whatever they want. It can be ancient history, it can be local history, whatever they might be interested in and then going out and being real historians. So getting into archives and museums and such, really digging in and analyzing their primary source material and then presenting their findings in different formats, a paper, a website, a documentary, a performance or a tabletop exhibit. It's done an awful lot to uh, improve the way history is taught as it's encouraged teachers to use primary sources in their classrooms when they otherwise may not have. So we're quite proud of that. Students are encouraged to participate in a competition where they enter at a local level, winners move on to the state, and then on to our national level, which is actually now international. We have more than 700,000 young people taking part every year in every state, the territories, and we're fast expanding around the globe. So it's very exciting to see these kids come together and share what they know. And we also do some other kinds of student programming where we take students to Normandy to study D-Day in World War II. So a much greater organization and program than when we first started out with just a handful of kids in a tiny area.
0: And quite a successful organization to boot. You mentioned that National History Day has a World War I-themed essay section. How was World War I represented? How did that go?
3: Well, we like to acknowledge the various anniversaries that pop up from time to time. And World War I in particular, uh, we created the teacher resource book, which teachers, if they're interested, can order online from us or also download it off of our website. But we've also this year, because of the theme, Taking a Stand in History, we're encouraging kids to look at different kinds of World War I topics, and that might be that they're military topics, but maybe they're social history topics. They're the impact of the war in their own backyards, that sort of thing. And we're very pleased to have the Centennial Commission's sponsorship of an award at our national program that's coming up in just about a week and a half on the, an outstanding entry on the history of World War I. We've done a lot in the last year to try to encourage teachers and students to look at topics that are related to World War I. Um, I think it's safe to say uh, that it's, it's a topic that is often kind of skimmed over in history classrooms. And as you all have pointed out time and time again, World War I is absolutely critical to understanding the 20th century as a whole.
0: Thank you, and thank your organization for making history bright, new, and exciting for our kids. That was Dr. Kathy Gorn, the executive director of National History Day, who joined the organization in 1982 and helped shape it into what it is today. Thank you for joining us, Kathy. This week in our international report, we turn to France. This time, not for jazz, but for plates. Throughout World War I, both sides of the conflict used an unexpected commonplace object to shore up morale for the home front, decorative plates. A recent article from French website Centenaire, C-E-N-T-E-N-A-I-R-E dot org, outlines the history of printed decorative plates and their use as bastions of patriotism during a grueling conflict. The images are compelling, and the stories they tell us are, well, sort of a patter on the platter. Follow the link in the podcast notes to read more about these domestic objects. And now from New Zealand, a story about filmic recreation. The Victorian section of Oamaru, a city in New Zealand, was recently turned into war-torn France as a set for filming. The film will become part of an installation dedicated to the Anzac forces that will open in the new Sir John Monash Media Center in France, due to be opened on Anzac Day in 2018. You can see footage of the recent shooting in Oamaru and learn more about the project by following the link in the podcast notes. And now a quick update about World War I baseball. As you may know, the singing of the national anthem at baseball games started as a tradition during World War I. In collaboration with minor league baseball, a growing number of teams are holding World War I veteran events in their stadiums. This story shows how this is bringing awareness of the war that changed the world to local communities. This past weekend, a great article was published in the Gwinnett Daily Post. And for those of you who may not know, Gwinnett County is a lovely community in Georgia. The article highlights the Gwinnett Braves game on Memorial Day that honored those who served in World War I. Take a read to see how more communities are engaging in the national conversation on World War I. We're looking forward to seeing more articles about these exciting baseball games as they continue throughout the month of June. Follow the link in the podcast notes. Next, we'd like to welcome another guest who will introduce us to the National Society of the Daughters of the American Revolution, NSDAR, or more often simply referred to as the DAR. Donna Crisp is the National Vice Chair for Commemorative Events for the 100th Anniversary of World War I and the Treaty of Versailles for the DAR. Hi, Donna. Welcome.
2: Hi, Tao. I'm going to highlight the work the DAR members did during World War I. Delivering aid and products and you mentioned at the beginning of the program shoe contracts Well defense leaders also needed a lot of other supplies and products So they went to the Daughters of the American Revolution who set up branches one of the branches was to knit products required by the troops such as Helmet liners and sweaters and they did it by the thousands and sent them out to ships and army units the things that soldiers and sailors needed in addition to that, they did a clipping bureau, which is pretty similar to today's public relations staff, to keep the troops up to date on the latest news from home, prepared thousands of jars of jelly for military hospitals, and adopted over 3,000 orphans and helped with their food and shelter in their own country. We also mentioned in this program Liberty Bonds. And just as an example, one chapter alone went door to door through a city and collected over $700,000 in Liberty loans. So these women were out really busy trying to support their country. One of the most prominent members in DAR at that time was Jane Delano, who was appointed the director of a wartime organization called the Department of Nursing. And she supplied nurses for the Army, the Navy, the Red Cross, and managed overseas mobilization of over 20,000 nurses. When France ran out of chickens, well, there's no poultry, there's no eggs, and you have a loss of food supply, pretty critical for France. So in 1917, DAR had a campaign to re-chickenize France. But what about today? Well, today we encourage our over 185,000 women to document and preserve their family stories of service through you, and also ensuring that those stories are archived at the Library of Congress. We support community classrooms, we write proclamations for county and city officials that commemorate major milestones in the war. But a topic that's really close to my heart and that I would love to highlight is the DAR American History Essay Contest. Now this is a a social history topic and basically it's this. It's World War I, Remembering the War to End All Wars. Now this is a contest for students that are in all schools in the United States, grades 5 through 8. And it breaks it down and it has them do research on imagining you're living in 1918 at the end of the war how it will impact your life. This essay is pretty exciting and it's an opportunity to focus on American youth and education.
0: Donna, when when are those essays due and when is it going out to the schools?
2: It starts very soon out to the schools at the beginning of the school year. They have several months that they uh, get the essays done. They get them back to the chapters. It goes through a state review and each state comes up with the best essay then it goes to national and then by June of the following year the best essay is picked and then that person and their family come to Washington and they're honored at, uh, at a conference that's about 4,000 women. So it's pretty impressive for the students. And it's a, a wonderful opportunity for them to be engaged in history.
0: Donna, that sounds like a really fantastic program. And it also sounds like you and Kathy Gorn should get together for a chat.
2: I know. I was pretty excited listening to the topics that she was doing. And, and this this is a portion that seems to be aligned and, and supporting her effort as well.
0: <laughs> Fantastic.
2: Oh, I just thought I'd mention a couple things that are happening in the future. Is we're going to have a Women of Resilience exhibit for those who want to open to the public, that want to see it. And at the end of the war, we're working with the We Serve America on uh, planning a national commemoration for Armistice Day. So that should be pretty exciting.
0: Well, I know that a number of your chapters also got involved in our 100 Cities, 100 Memorials program. I know that a lot of the projects are being submitted have participation by DAR chapters.
2: Historic preservation is very, very important to our society, and I am thrilled to hear that they are out doing that. Thank you.
0: That was Donna Crisp, the National Chair of Commemorative Events for the 100th Anniversary of World War I for the DAR. You can learn more by simply going to DAR.org. In our articles and posts, where we explore the World War I Centennial Commission's rapidly growing website at ww one ccorg Let's start with a story connected to America's World War I memorial in Pershing Park and an article by Sabin Howard, the sculptor of the giant bas-relief wall that's a central part of the design. This week at ww one ccorg news, we have an interview with the sculptor where he discusses how he created the design using live actors to model elements for him. Read the story at ww one ccorg news or follow the link in the podcast notes. on Stories of Service, a section of the website dedicated to capturing and preserving the stories of the people who served. This week, we feature Ladli Prasada Varnan. Again, it shows the immense diversity of those who served a 100 years ago, many of whom were recent immigrants. Varnan was such a man who immigrated to the U.S. in 1913 from East India, settling in Los Angeles. When America entered the war, Varnum was drafted into the Army. In looking at the stories of service posting, we noticed that his draft card listed him as Caucasian. This is notable because of the ongoing events at the time involving the East Indian American community, A wave of arrests of Indian nationalists and Germans took place in 1917. They were accused of violating the United States neutrality law by conspiring on American soil with Germans to overthrow the British Raj. The conspiracy charges led to the Hindu-German conspiracy trial, at the time the longest and most expensive trial ever held in the United States. The story of this trial, as well as the lives of Indian Americans who served in World War I, is told on a section of our website called www.vande. A few days after being drafted, Varnum declared his allegiance to the United States of America in California. He went on to serve in the Army from June 1918 to January 1919, and was part of Battery D of the 144th Field Artillery of the 40th Division. Read more about his life and legacy at our Stories of Services page by following the link in the podcast notes. To preserve your own family World War I history in the National Archive, we invite you to submit a story of service at ww1cc.org/stories, all lowercase. This week on the Right Blog. University of Kansas, Department of Germanic Languages and Literature Associate Professor Lori A. Vanchena discusses World War I American Immigrant Poetry, a Digital Humanities Project, an impressive and original project about World War I American Poetry. The poems discussed are those written in response to World War I by immigrants in the United States and constitute a broad range of commentary on the war, for, against, and much more. Read more about the project by visiting the right blog at one ccorg slash And that brings us to The Buzz, the centennial of World War I this week in social media with Catherine Akey. Catherine, what do you have for us this week?
4: Wow, we've been very busy over the weekend sharing our posts to our Facebook page to highlight the many, many different commemorative events that took place this Memorial Day weekend. If you go to our page and scroll through the timeline, you'll see videos, photos, and articles from all across the country. Some of my favorites include a video from the Cherokee Nation showing the Cherokee National Youth Choir participating in a ceremony at the Cherokee War Memorial in Tahlequah, Oklahoma. There's also amazing photos of fireworks at the National World War I Museum and Memorial in Kansas City and of the Memorial Day Parade here in DC, which included Doughboys, General Pershing, and other incredible volunteers. We also reposted a photo taken at the Asmarn American Cemetery near Bellow Wood, where a Doughboy played taps in front of the chapel there. Memorial Day was international. Take some time to scroll through. I'm confident you'll find something moving and interesting. The volume of World War I talk this Memorial Day is indicative, we think, of an overall trend here in the U.S. More people are talking about this conflict and those who served. One great indicator of this is the sheer number of amazing articles we're seeing published week to week. This week, the Daily Beast published an informative and moving piece about the Harlem Hellfighters and the black regiments of the war. They highlight the Hellfighters' bravery and accomplishments, as well as their fame as the best damn band in the army. But the article also turns its eye to the America that these patriots were turned to, a divided and discordant America. Go to the Daily Beast and read more in the article, Half Moan, Half Hallelujah, World War I's Harlem Hellfighters Who Cut Down Germans and Gave France Jazz. Finally this week, a piece from the website for the weird and historical Atlas Obscura. The article, penned by author Richard Rubin, who we interviewed on our podcast last week, is titled, The World War One Memorial That Refuses to Glorify War. It discusses a World War I memorial sculpture, Les Fantômes or The Phantoms. It is, according to Rubin, the eeriest war memorial you'll ever behold. The sculpture's designer, Paul Landowski, fought for four years on the war front and was awarded the Croix de Guerre. The memorial seems to come from his memory and his nightmares, a towering depiction of bodies that feels completely empty. As Rubin puts it in the article, rather than focusing on death as, quote, gone to a better place, Landowski focused on gone. Read more and see images of the memorial by going to Atlas Obscura.
0: Thank you, Catherine. A fascinating collection of what's posted about World War I in social media, as always. All of Catherine's stories have links to them in the podcast notes. And that's it for World War I Centennial News this week. Thank you for listening. We want to thank our guests, Mike Schuster from the Great War Project blog, Dr. Kathy Gorn, Executive Director of National History Day, Donna Crisp, National Vice Chair of Commemorative Events for the 100th Anniversary of World War I for the DAR, Catherine Akey, the Commission's Social Media Director and also the line producer for the show. And I'm Theo Mayer, your host. The U.S. World War I Centennial Commission was created by Congress to honor, commemorate, and educate about World War I. Our programs are to inspire a national conversation and awareness about World War I. This show is a part of that effort. We're bringing the lessons of 100 years ago into today's classrooms. We're helping to restore World War I memorials in communities of all sizes across the country, and of course, we're building America's National World War I Memorial in Washington, D.C. We rely entirely on donations. No government appropriations or taxes are being used. So please, give what you can by going to ww one slash donate, all lowercase. Or if you're listening to the show on your smartphone, you can text us a donation. Just text the letters WW1 to the number 41 Four four four. We want to thank the commission's founding sponsor, the Pritzker Military Museum and Library, for their support. The podcast can be found on our website at ww1cc.org/cn, on iTunes and Google Play at World War One Centennial News, and as of last week, you can also find us on TuneIn. Our Twitter and Instagram handles are both at ww1cc, and we're on Facebook at ww1centennial thanks for joining us. And don't forget to share what you're learning here with someone about the war that changed the world. So long.